Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Guys, come ready. All right, there you go. A little bit better. All right, well, um, before I start off with uh, launching into Mark this morning, I just wanted to give a special thanks to uh, Pastors Jolene and James uh, McCord, who were here this week, and they brought their team. Uh, They had a conference here in our building on Wednesday through Saturday, and they had 50-plus people here uh, just getting breakthrough and getting freedom in their life and seeing the enemies claim on their heart, on their mind, and their emotions just lifted off of them. And I just wanted to say thank you guys for coming all the way from Texas. Big welcome. Thank you guys. Um, So for those of you who went to that conference that are here, may you walk well in your newfound freedom. Amen. May the Lord strengthen you. Um, Well, uh, over the past uh, season uh, of time, Uh, the leadership team here at City Life and I have been kind of noticing that one of the greatest needs that we feel uh, this generation needs is just the knowledge of God's Word, to be mighty in God's Word. Uh, Some of the the, uh, circumstances and situations of life have kind of revealed the anemicness of kind of the big C church. And really, it's a call of God that we are born for such a time as this. You were put on this planet for this generation. And part of your call by God is to know His Word so you can see that be an instrument through your life to see God's kingdom grow through your life. And so uh, we, over, the, over this next season, are going to really dial up in our knowledge of the Word. Really get serious and focused on really taking in God's Word and letting His Word do its work in our heart to transform and change us. Amen? So uh, today we're going to start in Mark. We're going to spend time uh, next four weeks in Mark. We're going to go a little quicker. Uh, But we're going to take a little time in Colossians in our life groups. And so, uh, again, if you haven't joined a life group, jump in and uh, dig in with Colossians with us as well. So, Uh, Just like uh, meeting a new person, if you were to jump on a train or jump in a bus and be riding next to somebody uh, for a little while, you'd probably want to get to know them. You'd probably, one of your first questions would be, hey, where are you from? Uh, You'd try to get a little background information as to them, as to kind of put a little context as who is this person that's beside me or in front of me. In just the same way, we need to kind of get a little context, a little background to the book that we're going to be spending the next three or four weeks with and uh, let God just kind of open up the mystery and knowledge of God's Word to you. Amen? But before we go uh, with this little intro, let's pray. Holy Spirit, God, we thank you so much for your Word. God, because in your Word is life. God, the abundant life that we yearn, that the world tries to sell us that's out there, God, it's right here. And Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us, whether we've known you for decades or God, we're still searching after truth. 
Father, we pray that you would open up your word and reveal who you are to us. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us in ways that man cannot in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, just to get a little background, if you have a Bible, just turn to Mark 1. We'll kind of dive off there in a second. Um, But just to give a little background on this gospel named Mark. Mark is one of the first accounts that we have of Jesus, the first recorded accounts that we have of Jesus. It was written by a Christian named John Mark, uh, and just by, uh, he's just known as Mark, um, shortened to Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul, had a little run-in with Paul. Paul thought he abandoned his post at a certain time, which we'll get into in a little bit. That's part of Mark's story. But he traveled with Paul for a little bit, but really, he was Peter's scribe. So the Apostle Peter, the one that made all the mistakes, all the prideful, uh, arrogant claims, uh, that is the one that Mark is saddled next to. This is after Jesus is resurrected and goes to be with the Father. Uh, Mark is Peter's scribe. So Mark is taking Peter's firsthand account of Jesus and his ministry. Um, The early church historian Papias claims Mark is the collection of, again, Peter's eyewitness. Uh, Mark wrote his gospel to Roman Christians during the time of the great persecution in Rome. This is around 64 A.D. Uh, The emperor Nero was turning up his persecution in Rome on the Christians, and uh, Mark writes this gospel in the midst of that. The Gospel of Mark is the most translated book in the the world. Um, Of all the Gospels, the Wycliffe Translators, the largest uh, Bible translator organization in the world, they go to uh, different tribes, tongues, peoples that uh, do not have a Bible, and they spend years with them learning their language and then putting that language into written form and then translating the Bible in their language. Tremendous ministry. But one of the first books they translate is Mark. Now, again, they're a little human, but Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. So if you're going to translate, you know, you're not going to translate Matthew that's 28 chapters. You know, 16, 17 chapters of Mark will do us just plenty fine. But uh, it is the shortest, but that's why it's the most interpreted or translated book. Um, But again, it's interesting. It's also. It's also, and maybe it's sovereign that it's designed this way. They were partic- it was particularly this gospel of Mark was particularly suitable to introduce the scriptures to people of all backgrounds, of all classes, of all tribes. It's the one gospel of all the four that's geared towards the Gentile ear, the non-Jewish ear, the people that don't really know much about the Old Testament. Mark writes this gospel to people that don't know the Jewish story as well. This is the gospel of Mark. Mark was written to the Roman world for the Gentile, for those who don't know the background of the Old Testament. Therefore, it's very instructive and helpful gospel to walk through. Mark's easy to outline because it kind of comes in two parts. The first part, Mark 1 through about middle of Mark 8, takes place in Galilee in one location. This section is all about Jesus being the servant who rules. Mark is trying to produce a picture of Jesus as the servant who rules with authority. And we'll get into that. 
And then the second part of Mark comes a little bit different. This is, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. Mark, we'll get into, is uh, 40% of Mark is the last week of Jesus' life. He really focuses on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And this, the script is flipped. It's the ruler who serves. So just a little outline to Mark. Now, what do we see in Mark? Some kind of uh, uniquenesses to Mark. Just a little list. Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus and less on the words of Jesus. So here we get a lot of uh, stories of the works of Jesus rather than his teachings. Uh, Mark records 19 miracles and only four parables. It's interesting the way he sets this up. Uh, number two, the language of Mark uses emotive and often abrupt language. Mark highlights the emotions of both Jesus and the people that he's ministering to. It's almost as if Mark gives us a little more emotion than the other Gospels do. We see that people had strong reactions to Jesus. There's over 15 times in the Gospel of Mark that people have face-to-face encounters with him, and they're forever changed, forever transformed. People were never passive about Jesus, nor bored with him. There's no way to just ignore him. People either uh, were angry, or they were astonished, or in awe. People fought against him, or they put their faith in him. And the same is true today. You'll either reject him or you'll receive him as your Lord. There's no middle ground. Number three, Jesus acts quickly to meet needs. He frames it that Jesus immediately, Jesus quickly, straightforward, straight away. This is uh, in use, just the word immediately. If you just read the first chapter of Mark, the word immediately is said nine times. There's an emphasis that Mark is putting on the action of the gospel. It's been known as the moving picture of the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Mark. Number four, Mark uses the historical present tense over 150 times. Now, I know this point is not going to be for everybody, all right? This is more for the English majors, but this is interesting, all right? So in the original, instead of writing Jesus came, Mark writes Jesus comes. Mark's all about Jesus says, not what Jesus said. Jesus heals instead of Jesus healed. It's a small little difference, but it makes a tremendous impact on the impetus or the momentum that we're found in the Gospels. There's action, there's movement here. Number five, Mark holds up the cost of discipleship even though the disciples fail. Now, this is what I love about Mark, is he was around the disciple that made probably the most mistakes. And if that was you and somebody was writing a biography about you, do you think that you would have him include all your greatest fails? Huh? What if, 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 he, if you knew that this, this letter that Mark was going to write and spread to all known Christians... What do you think you'd do? What do you think your flesh would want to do? Your flesh would want to cover that up. Be like, hey, man, um, that people don't need to know about that, right? People weren't there. They didn't get the context. You know, they didn't really, you know, the things that we would try to do to kind of cover up. Mark writes Peter's mistakes all over. Actually, in Mark, it writes more of his mistakes than his accolades. 
You have to find in other Gospels things that Peter did well, not in Mark. Tells you that Peter was, had the fear of the Lord about what Mark writes. Make sure that it's accurate. He holds the cost of discipleship. Mark, again, who's a scribe, who's collecting Peter's accounts, consistently shows the failings of not only Peter's, but all the disciples, of how Jesus uses those moments to grow those average people into God's new kind of family. Sometimes the disciples whine and complain and have lack of faith. We know those disciples because those disciples are us sometimes, right? Whining, complaining, lack of faith. It's like I find myself in those disciples. But Jesus takes those disciples and uses those moments to create a people that reflect heaven on earth. It's tremendous. If God can use a denier like Peter and a deserter like Mark, He can use flawed disciples like you and me in this generation. Mark wants his readers to understand that Christ's call involves both power and suffering. Power and suffering in their conflict with Satan's forces. Mark wrote to a community in Rome that needed to be reminded that God heard their prayers and would work through their witness and faith. That they needed to be reminded that this might cost them their lives in their persecution. And they could be reminded through the failure of the disciples that we find in Mark that he could still work with them patiently to help, help them live to be the person that God designed them to be and advance his kingdom through their lives the way he dreamed. They needed to be reminded that God can still work through failure because God redeems failures and restores them and brings them confidence that they can walk in their newfound identity. Number six, Mark's emphasis is on the last week of Jesus' life. Like I said, uh, 40% of the Gospels focuses on the last week. Someone's described uh, Mark's Gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Uh, Jesus was born in order to die. His death was not a tragic accident, but part of God's plan from the very beginning. Jesus is our selfless servant. He is our suffering Savior. He's the servant who rules, and He's the ruler who serves. So, there's that little intro. Let's dive in, right? Mark 1. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Packed first sentence. It's actually His title, it's also a loaded statement that Mark is giving a big claim. And this is one of the only parts that Mark is inserting his own perspective. This is his claim. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his claim. And everything else that follows is story after story, testimony after testimony, backing up this one first sentence claim. This sets up everything. For Mark. Now, what's this beginning of the good news? Why is that capitalized? Good news. That's, um, that's euangelion. That's, that's the same word as gospel. Gospel, the truth. 
This is the good news of God's long-awaited kingdom arriving in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By the time Mark writes this book, the word gospel has become a technical term, a familiar term that when we said gospel, it is referenced directly to the testimony of Jesus or the account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, we didn't really get to much later for people to reference the actual four gospel accounts as gospels. Uh, we didn't use that word quite yet, but it was just uh, the good news. There's good news about Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you knew, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, it's a title. Absolutely. It's a title. So here, Mark gives us Jesus' human name, but then he gives this name Christ. Christ. Christ is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Christ, like I said, it's a synonym of Messiah. Yeshua, Yamashiach. Jesus, the Messiah. And then he goes... And then he ends it with the Son of God. Now, this conveyed far more to Jewish minds than they do ours. They were nothing less than the assertion of his divinity, that he was God in the flesh, that he was God with us, that they were equal with God, that he was equal with God. He was himself very God, fully man, fully God, described in over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. This prophecy is fulfilling God-man as the centerpiece of Mark's book. All right, so there's a big title. And then he begins his kind of prologue with this prophecy that we find from Isaiah and a little bit of Malachi, but Isaiah 800 years before this man Jesus hits the earth. And he says this, Mark 1, 2, says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Mark chooses to begin his prologue with a prophecy way long ago. And he declares, in other words, what has happened or is happening is in perfect accord or in perfect agreement with what has been predicted is going to happen. And then he points the focus to this man, John the Baptist, in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance to the Jewish people. That in and of itself is a little odd, but here's this kind of wild man. He's dressed up with camel hair, and he eats honey and locusts, and he's kind of this wild man preaching repentance to the Jewish people who, in their mind, they didn't think they needed to be, re they, they didn't need to repent. They were a part of like God's holy bloodline, and therefore they were already kind of secure. Repentance was for the Gentile. Repentance was for the Gentile to come and be a part of God's kingdom, earthly family. And so that's what baptism was for in the Old Testament, was non-Jewish people that wanted to become Jewish. They'd get baptized. But here's John, the ba John baptizing and preaching a message of repentance to the Jewish people. No, no, no. Not just the Gentiles that need to repent, you too. Just because you're a part of God's family means nothing. Your heart before the Lord is wicked and needs repentance. And so John in the wilderness is stirring up uh, what is known as a kerfuffle 
in the wilderness. But the prologue ends with this, Mark 1.8, with John declaring this over Jesus and letting the crowd know this is who this man is. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John identifies Jesus as the one who's going to bring the Spirit. He's going to baptize you in the Spirit. It's a fulfillment of prophecies in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, about God changing the human heart and taking it from a stony heart and turning it into a heart of flesh, a heart that has calluses on it, that's burned by sin, that's broken, that has disintegration all up in it. God is going to come and bring His Spirit and bring healing and restoration and integration on planet Earth. So his point number one is Jesus is the one who brings the Holy Spirit. This is the main point right from the get-go. Mark wants you to, to kind of listen in on, lean in on. Jesus is the one that's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Then it says, then it's like if the heaven opened and God himself gives this voice of affirmation and confirmation over this God-man Jesus. You are my beloved Son. With you I'm fully pleased. Jesus was then led out into the wilderness to be tempted to fight with Satan. He wins his personal battle with Satan, and then right away his public ministry begins. And right in short order, very quickly, right in Mark 1, we have Jesus starting his ministry. He has the, he has the least about a background information of Jesus of, of all four Gospels. He wants to get right into the story. He doesn't want to waste any time with fluffy backgrounds or genealogies. He's going to get right into his claim, backing up his claim. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1, 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' message to the villages and the towns that he would go to early on in his ministry. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, is here, is right in front of you. So get in line with it. Beginning in Galilee, his ministry begins as he rallies a few followers to be disciples of himself. The new king proclaiming his long-awaited kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. This was Jesus' message to Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus is carrying forward this story that we find in the Old Testament, scriptures about God's rescue operation of the world. Through Jesus Christ, God is restoring his reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives and then by inviting them to live under his reign in his family. Mark then, in the form of testimonies, lays out three other significant claims about Jesus. Just in the first three chapters, we get four major claims about Jesus. One, he's the one who brings the Holy Spirit. Number two, Jesus is the one who has authority over demons. Jesus is the one who has authority over over demons. 
Mark shows us Jesus, who through his power is bringing God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken under the oppression of dark spiritual forces. Let's take this instance in Mark 1. Mark 1, 21, and they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, mind you, this first story that Mark gives us is Jesus finds the first demon in the church. Oh, hey, it's in the synagogue. It's in the church. He's not going way out into the wilderness to find some demonized person. He's right in the middle of the synagogue. And when his presence is there, when his authority is there, it's like those religious demons kind of manifested. And immediately, verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, as if the demons are speaking through him. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, this holy one of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Powerful story of a man who, even in the synagogue, Jesus is cleansing, Jesus is purifying, Jesus is making holy. That is before him. He goes on, and Mark shares the story of Jesus healing many with sicknesses and diseases, casting out many demons. Jesus was cleansing the leper. He was healing the paralytic. And Jesus, all along this way, and it's interesting if you read a few of the other stories, Jesus along the way is not only just healing them and bringing their bodies into alignment with God's will. He's also offering forgiveness. He's offering forgiveness in which only God can forgive sin. And it was a major no-no. Of all the no-nos, this is one of the big no-nos. Jesus was the only one who had authority over demons, but He also had the authority to forgive sin. Number three, Jesus is the one who has authority over religious authority. Ooh, Jesus didn't play along with the hypocrites of religious control of the Pharisees. He wasn't playing their game. They had kind of made their kind of game in town. They had turned the temple into a money exchange for their profit. The temple had their own money. They they issued their own currency. And so as the people came in to offering their offerings to God, they would in exchange give them temple money to buy their offerings because they, they didn't allow other money to buy their offerings. And so in that exchange, they were getting rich. This whole temple experience was getting corrupted. Only the healthy uh, Jewish males could be kind of the closest to the Holy of Holies. If you're a woman, you're a little farther away. If you were sick, you weren't even allowed in the, in the inner court. You had to kind of 
be farther away. And so through time, the priorities of the ho- God's house of prayer, where God's presence was supposed to reside, became corrupted. I think we're quite familiar with institutions becoming slowly and slowly corrupted. But yeah, so this Jewish synagogue church was corrupted. And in comes Jesus with the purifying authority of that is not my Father's way. That is not how heaven operates, and I'm here to bring heaven on earth. I'm here to demonstrate how my Father is and who He is in heaven, in the culture that is created in heaven, and I've come to create that very same culture here on earth. But He has authority over these religious authorities. Jesus and the religious establishment's priorities differ. Whereas the Pharisees may think that Jesus is questioning the Scripture's authority, Jesus demands instead a different way to understand it and thereby apply it. Through Jesus, God is doing something radically new. And it's not found with the staleness of these religious control freaks that we find in the Pharisees. And he gives this interesting analogy, Jesus does, a little word picture. And he says this in Mark 2, 22. It says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what would happen, just to kind of give you a little historical context, a lot of times these wineskins were kind of animal bladders, just to kind of... It's, different age. Anyway, uh, kind of sterilized animal bladders. Uh, And you would put uh, wine in them, and they would ferment in that bladder. And as as the fermentation happened, it would expand that bladder. Well, once the fermentation process ends, that bladder begins to start getting a little rigid, starts getting a little, little firm, because it has done its job. It has kind of fermented the wine, and now it's done. But if you were to take that old wineskin and put brand new unfermented wine in there and sit, it'd just sit there and it would burst because it's already maxed out. It's already stretched. And so Jesus gives this analogy to say, if you want the new wine, it's going to require a new wineskin. If you want God's presence to come in a way that you've never experienced Him before, it's got to require a new wineskin. The old wineskin is not going to do its job. The old wineskin is going to burst if God was to pour out. So He's being gracious. He's not pouring out His new wine in that old wineskin. Because as we've seen through history, well, through the Jewish people and through the Catholic Church, you can't purify what may be corrupted. But anyway, holy cow. Jesus shows that he has more understanding and authority over the ones who are supposed to know God and his will. But God is doing something new. Yet the religious people, they're the ones that are supposed to know what's going on. They're upset with Jesus' authority. They're coming to kind of throw their game off. Hey, wait, the people are following you. Hey, wait a second. Hey, wait, we need to start coming up with some claims against this man or we're done. And they inevitably were. Anyway, number four, Jesus is making a new covenant family. This is our last point. 
Jesus is making a new covenant family. By the time we reach the end of chapter 3, it's crystal clear that Jesus is unlike anybody these people have ever heard of or ever even read about. He is affirmed and confirmed by a voice from heaven. He has supernatural power over sickness, disease, and the powers of darkness. He agitates the Jewish religious elite with his unconventional ways, yet he calls people to come and follow him, to be a disciple, to be trained by him. Jesus even seems to prioritize them over that of his own family. Mark 3, 31, he says, And his mother and brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother here are, my, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's my family. They're my family. Now, in the Jewish community, if there was a false teacher who was under the influence of Satan, the penalty for misleading God's people was death. That was the penalty. If you were a fault, found to be a false teacher under the influence of the enemy, the penalty was death. And so Jesus' family had a reason to want to get to him, want to, reach, to him, reach, reach out to him before the legal experts did. His family was probably coming to him to try to declare him mentally incompetent, to rescue him from the dangers that was, he was sure to face from the religious establishment. But Jesus said, no, I know maybe you know why you're here, but that's not my family. My family is a different family. Thinking of people in the community as brothers and sisters was common. Respecting older persons as fathers and mothers was widespread. But allowing ties in the religious community to take precedence over family ties was unheard of in Judaism. You don't go against blood, ever. But Jesus says, my priority has a little bit different than just blood. My allegiance is actually is to the people that are submitted to my Father's will. Those are the people in my family. Now, my other, my other family are important. Not saying that they have zero priority, but they have less priority than the, those that are following God's will. Now, hopefully, you got folks and family just serving the Lord, serving Jesus. There's no conflict. He's not rejecting his earthly family altogether, but he's clearly demonstrating his priorities, kingdom allegiance over that of even blood. So what we've seen so far in Mark is indeed this Jesus who is a servant who rules with a unique authority, authority over demons, authority over the religious establishment and their desire for control. Jesus is the one who's making a new covenant family and he's baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. Amen? So let's not be like the Pharisees. Let's give our allegiance wholly and wholeheartedly to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And let's not be like the Pharisees resisting what God is doing. He's, God is purifying His church in this season, and it's a beautiful work.
He's purifying his church to say, who are my confessional people that will stand with me, even in the midst, not only of my power, but of my suffering? Who are the people that are going to stand with me, even in the midst of you might getting a little persecuted? You might, you might getting canceled. You might getting kind of like people kind of misaligned you. But it's like, no, I'm fine with being misaligned because even though that may happen, my heart is aligned with the creator of the universe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your servant who rules and the ruler who serves. Father, you don't need to reach out to us. God, you don't need to cleanse us. You don't need to forgive us. God, we don't even deserve any of that. God, our hearts are many times far from you. God, we forget about your goodness. We forget about what you've done. We're a forgetful people. And Father, I pray that as we journey through Mark in these next few weeks, God, that you would put a stake in our heart for the things that matter to you will matter to us. God, the things that have weighed us down, they won't weigh us any longer because, God, we turn to you. And that, God, that, Lord, we thank you for your victory over the enemy. And that, God, by your own authority, God, you give us your same authority. And I pray that you would teach us how to walk in that authority in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that this next generation would be captivated by you and your word and the mightiness of your spirit. And God, be captivated by the authority of your word over the demonic realm. Because, Father, Lord, we look around us and... Lord, I don't, know if it, I don't know about you, but Lord, I see eyes of people just weighed down and oppressed by the enemy. And Father, you have called us for such a time as this. Lord, you send us out even this week to have divine appointments with people impacted by the enemy. Father, let us be your salt and light to those people around us. Let us be your uh, ambassadors of a better kingdom and a better way. Lord Jesus, let us go out with the power of your spirit and in the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org. We'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.